So like I was just basically as uncool as you could be in high school. Um, I know everyone says that like in hindsight, but like I just remember like squirreling away and like reading my Haruki Murakami books in the corner. And um... <laughs> um, who's on the show this week? Kevin Wynn. And what's he going to talk about? Uh, his very cool career trajectory. He's worked for a lot of interesting places, right? Amazon, Oyster, Google. He's currently the editorial director of Google Play Books. But always with book stuff, right? Yeah, it's always with book stuff. Um, he had he worked well. That's a lot. He he worked at um, a couple really weird startups way back, right? Right when he got out of college. All right, he was telling us about the time he worked at I Can Has Cheeseburger. Yeah. So I mean, he he does a lot of really interesting stuff, and he's actually um, launching. Uh, a new editorial direction for Google Play Books in uh, theoretically the next year. So pay attention to it. What's the story that he's going to tell us? Talks about the culture at Amazon, the good and the bad, um, which is like a, a pretty uh, big topic in the book world. Uh, and even, you know, in mainstream media nowadays, you know how poorly Amazon treats its employees. Uh, but he has a lot of really, really awesome things to say about them. You know, some bad, but mostly awesome things to say. So let's get to it. So uh, it's Kyle, Kevin, and I. We're hanging out uh, tonight. Is you know actually going to be um, regular season basketball history. Kobe Bryant is playing his last game ever, theoretically, uh, <laughs> and at the exact same time, the Golden State Warriors may break the record for the most wins in a single season. It's so, probably going to happen. Which is currently seventy three games, right? Seventy three games. If they win tonight, yeah. but you don't want them to win. I don't know. I guess there's just something. Um, I do no. Here's the thing. I do want them to win, but like I just know that as I'm watching that game, like I can just not root ever for the overwhelming favorite. That's fair. I mean, I actually don't know if I want them to win, but it would it would be kind of shitty if if you know two teams. How many games have, are left in the season? Tonight's the last game. Oh. Here's the other thing too. There's some part of me that's like, okay, if they break this record, the Warriors, they break the record, and then they lose to the Spurs in the Western Conference Finals, and then the Spurs go on to win. It's like, is it all for naught? It's like the Patriots. Yeah, exactly like the Patriots. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, and unlike I, the Patriots, I actually really like the Warriors. Well, I love the Patriots. I was heartbroken when that happened, um, <laughs> and I was sitting in a room in New York with all Giant fans. I'm a Giants fan, and I was there in that room, and it was glorious. Uh, I'm a Seahawks fan, so I'm about oh. to strangle you. Oh my hey, God! You did oh. beat us in the regular season a few years ago, but I mean, anyway, let's uh, let's get right into it. Um, I actually really want to hear, like, just generally speaking, about your career trajectory because you worked at. Um, a lot of places, but three of what I think of, um, three businesses that I think of being on like the very forefront of publishing today. Um, and I actually want to like kind of break this into segments so that we speak on each one of them for, you know, at length. Um, but before we do that, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about like, you know, where and how you grew up, why you went into books, what you did out of college and like how it took you to where you are now. Oh yeah. That's, that's a deep question. Um, <laughs> I, I have this like weird realization that, um, I've been like running away from a lot of things for a long time. Um, so part of the reason I, uh, am not a big Patriots fan anymore. I'm actually like, so I grew up outside of Boston. And so, you know, like I was there, um, for like the first Brady season, I was there for the first Red Sox championship. Um, and so Boston sports are something special. And then when all those teams started winning, everyone just started becoming awful. Um, so I, I actually am from New Hampshire, uh -huh. um, and I have been a fan of all those teams, still am. 
Um, he is one of the awful fans, by the way. <laughs> he's the one that you're describing. Well, and I, I do have to say, you know, I growing up, like I was taught to hate Yankees fans because you know they're assholes. And and I will say that my 11 uh, year old brother, he was 11 at the time, went to a Yankees game at Yankee Stadium and wore his Red Sox hat and got a beard dumped on his head. Yeah. So you know maybe they were back in the old stadium, but. Um, in the grand scheme of the history of the Umbros, though, I highly doubt that that beer pouring was unprompted. He was 11 years old. <laughs> sure. Not 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 advocating in any way for pouring beer on an 11-year-old's head. But, Maybe he was a shitty 11-year-old. Yeah. Are we allowed to swear? Yeah. Yes. Say okay, whatever yes. you want. Uh, however, you hear that, Matt? You might have been a shitty 11-year-old. <laughs> um, if I know Umbros, but, and I do. But uh, I will say that, uh, and I'm still you know a diehard Boston fan, but I have to say that after moving to New York, I realized that it may it might be the other way around and Boston is, you know, kind of the more uh, malicious fan base. Yeah, I mean, I don't actually... So it's the thing is, like, with the Red Sox, right? Like, they were the underdog perpetually with the Yankees, and then at some point they basically became the Yankees. With mm-hmm. the Patriots, it's a little bit of a different story. They just became this whole other beast, which I certainly respect. You know, everyone talks about the dark magic of Bill Belichick. <laughs> so I, I definitely respect that on some level, but, like, they started winning all the time. Everyone was, like, a little bit too serious, and then so... um after high school, uh, I like basically fled to, to go to college in the Pacific Northwest um, at like a really dinky school in Tacoma, Washington. Um, and then there, I was just like, "All right, I'm a, I'm a Seahawks fan now. Uh, I really want I like I really truly wanted to root for a garbage team. So you know, I wanted to become a Seahawks fan. But that's not what this is really about. So I went to a dinky college out there, um, and I don't know. I just felt like I was so far away from um, the East Coast, you know. Um, and it, it was weird, too, because uh, in high school, I went to, like, a private boarding school, but I was, like, an Asian kid. I also was, like, wasn't a boarding student. Um, I was really into, to like, varsity wrestling. So, like, I was just basically as uncool as you could be in high school. Um, I know everyone says that, like, in hindsight, but, like, I just remember, like, squirreling away and, like, reading my Haruki Murakami books in the corner and, um, <laughs> you know doing really poorly in English classes. Um, although it's, I've had this like weird thing in hindsight where uh, I remember trying to test into AP English um, and they didn't let me in um, and instead put me in AP Calculus, which I did not even take the test for, <laughs> which I thought was really strange at the time. And like years later, I'm just like, I see what's going on. Yeah, I get um, it. That's yeah. that sucks. I mean, look where, look where you are now, though. Oh, well, I know, right? Like, uh, are you, Were you any good at Calculus? Yeah, I got a five. I did. I did fine. I wasn't good at it, but I don't know. Um, it still sort of stings. Yeah, it, yeah. that was it, like it even stings more, right? It's like yeah. maybe they were right about me. <laughs> maybe I'm just like preternaturally good at math. Did, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, I I fled the East Coast to go to college on the West Coast. Um, studied English. Um, and I actually double majored in something else called uh, international political economy, which is like, uh basically econ, social science, political science. It's like a very hippy-dippy Northwest thing. Um, I don't think I've even heard of that. I don't think it like exists anywhere, yeah. except there's some programs in England, apparently. Um, super, <laughs> it's like, all very exclusive. Yeah, <laughs> right. Certainly not. Um, so I like, double majored, and um, my I remember my parents just being like, yeah, he's an econ major. <laughs> it was just like, that's patently untrue. But um, yeah. And when, so, you, and when you were in school, you studied with Lori Frankel? I did, yes. Yeah. So she, um, yeah, I took two or three classes with her. She was incredible. She's my favorite teacher always. So I, uh, she's a previous guest on the show. So episode three for anybody listening. Where was I going? With this I, was, I went. I went to college. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
And then I graduated from college. Um, and actually, unlike high school, where I didn't do very well, um, I did really well in college, um, probably thanks a lot to the direction of people like Laurie Frankel. And then, um, yeah, so I graduated in 2009, which is like just post-financial crash. Um, so there were just, there were no jobs. There were no jobs. And we were, I don't know, I was just convinced that I would have to move back in with my parents. But um, even when I tried to lightly broach that, they were just like, oh, you are not moving back here. Because <laughs> um, I think I think at the time, both of my parents were also unemployed. Um, so for good reason, not because they didn't care. Um, but I remember my first job I found on Craigslist. And um, it oh, was... Brave, brave soul. <laughs> I know, it sounded like a scam, but it was for uh, this website called I Can Ask Cheeseburger. Where, where did oh you write? God. You wrote an article about this. Yeah, so um, I actually, there was this... Uh, anthology that uh, Coffeehouse Press put out last year. And um, it was the whole anthology is about cat videos. <laughs> and so they were like, do you want to write about cat videos? I was like, what if I just write about this old job I had? And they were like, yeah, that's way better. <laughs> so um, I wrote like a 4,000 word essay about working there and how weird it was. Um, and then I did a, like a 1,500 word adaptation for the all. Um, so that maybe it was what you said. Yeah, no, for yeah. sure that was it. But you should check out the book. I will. The book's actually really great. It actually has a lot of really great people in it. Like David Carr is in it. Really? Oh, yeah. David uh, Carr wrote about cat videos. Yeah. Um, and what's funny is I think uh, they, like, I think they had edits for him, and you know, and then he died, and they're like, "Well, I think we're just gonna run this as is." So you know, he's actually been a topic in at least half of the episodes we've done so really? far. Really? David yeah. Carr's a through line, for sure. Yeah. Oh, God, it, I love that I've evoked David Carr unknowingly. Yeah, it's. I mean, I love it. He's, he's one of my favorite writers of all time. Um, but you were at I Has Cheeseburgers. Yeah, yeah, I Has Cheeseburger, um, where I was paid, I think, like, if I worked it out, I was only allowed to work 35 hours a week, contract. I think if I had worked there for a whole year, I would have made $15,000. Wow. Oh my god! Half before tax, maybe. Is it like an hourly wage? Yeah, hourly wage. Um, to be fair, I would basically work half the day. Like basically, what I did was because um, all the content was user generated, so I just like put it into WordPress, add some tags, schedule it. And I did this for like twelve different sites because they had a bunch of other sites too that were a lot like very similar um, and probably a lot dumber. So there was like. Oh, like I can't cheeseburger, but for celebrities, and I can't cheeseburger for politics, um, and they're they're all about as funny as they sound. Um, so I do that as I'd finish like basically by noon, and then I would spend like the rest of the day like on the then nascent BuzzFeed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and so I left that job to go work uh, remotely as a startup. It was based in San Francisco, but I worked um, in Seattle and. Um, I keep meaning to write some kind of essay about this, but the uh, the company um, was they basically made apps for parents, um, and of course, like basically, no one at this company was a parent. It was like all uh, <laughs> frat bros from Cal, <laughs> and so it was like very 2010 tech, I think. Um, and geolocation was in, so we had this app that like tracked the locations of your kids which also assumed that they had a smartphone and also just like totally killed the battery on your phone. Um, so what I did for them was I like kind of ran their marketing effort, which was like a parenting blog. So for like a year, I was like this covert mommy blog. <laughs> and we did all sorts of, I mean, I never outright said that I was like a mom, but I feel like it was just like assumed. So you towed the line. 
What was your pen name? Um, I just like signed off as the company, and I had like a few freelance writers that I found that would that had like more legitimate experiences. But you know, we did all sorts of shady shit. Like, I remember we um, like there was a time when you know Dig.com um, was very powerful in a, in a sort of Reddit way. I think we paid someone to like boost a story to the front page, um, wow. which was just like a crazy operation. Someone at Dig? No, 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 no. It was like just some guy that did this for a living and he had all these like he's like a network of like ghost users upvote that would upvote bots. stuff yeah. and you know um, that's that's awesome that's i didn't a, know that that existed it's referred to as a botnet right yeah i don't yeah. I, you know i don't even know how it worked exactly it was almost like the less we knew the better yeah. um it was either bots it could have just been he was paying people for votes or i gotta, one I gotta very say dedicated app, app companies in accounts. 2010 are the worst what are app companies in 2010 because yeah. i worked at one too and it was you know I won't say anything. Jeff got a, <laughs> Jeff Jeff's uh, professional history started in a bar. I met some guy at a bar and lied to him about what I was capable of doing, and he <laughs> gave me the job, and I figured it out. Um, really? Yeah, and it was it was very stupid on my part, but it was it was my way into the work world. Um, but that said, uh, you know, I'm glad I had the experience. I mean, it's just weird when you look at anyone's career, and then it. At many points, it's just a lot of luck. Yeah, you know. And granted, like, I don't know. When everyone is lucky, maybe that's not luck. But it's just it's never really cut and dry, um, especially like in our professions, which are like at least remotely creative or in creative industries. Right? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I mean, my first job, I walked into a studio in Wall Street with a cover letter and a suit on, and they took me. Mm-hmm. And I know now why they took me is because they were skimming uh, off the rates that we charged as freelancers. Uh, but at the time, I was like the coolest thing ever. I got a job, <laughs> and I look back and I did the math, and I think that year I also made like maybe seventeen thousand dollars total in New York. Yeah, that's that's crazy. Because I mean, yeah, I was, made fifteen thousand dollars, but like in Seattle, yeah. and this was like a pre-boom Amazon Seattle. That year was rough. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was a hard year. It, yeah, it was it was not great. But then, so how long were you at the startup? What happened? Why'd you leave? Um, yeah, so I was making like $30,000 a year at this startup, uh-huh. um, which at the time seemed like a ton of money because it was double what I was making at my previous job. <laughs> um, and then, you know, eventually that became not a lot of money. And so, um, you know, I had some stuff with like family where I needed to send some money back. Um, so I was like, I got to just start making more money. Um, and then an opportunity at Amazon just sort of showed up. And I had a friend that had just started there. So, again, that was lucky too. Um so I, I don't think I would have gotten that job if I didn't have some kind of referral. Um, but they were basically looking for a merchandiser in books. Um, and what that really means is, like, you do all of this awful grunt work at Amazon, um, but at least it was in books. So And it you know, paid more than $30,000 a year at least. So yeah. Um, so that's how I got into Amazon. And then, um, yeah, from there it just kind of gets a little crazy. So Okay. Cool. Well, I wanted to um, ask you a handful of things. Uh, you know, for example, Bygone Bureau. Yeah. When did that start? So I. And, and what is it for anyone listening? Yeah. So the Bygone Bureau, um, it was kind of like an online lit mag. We ran a lot of essays and um, humor pieces and that kind of stuff. Uh, I think we started it in 2007, me and my friend Nick. And we were both editors at our college newspaper um 
And if you ever thought your college newspaper was bad, ours was just like truly horrific. Um, we published like once a week. It was like six pages long or something like that. <laughs> so we ran the one page that was like arts and entertainment. Um, but we really liked doing it. Uh, we were terrible editors, so we we started something um, sort of just a tide over our like staff of writers for the summer, and then it kind of spun off into its own thing. And um, I would say that like the Bygone Bureau, as proud of doing it and as happy as it made me for a long time, like was a pretty earnest and mediocre site. Um, and granted, that's like where our skills were at the time, but um, there weren't a lot of sites publishing personal essays. I think mm-hmm. at the time, the only big one was uh, the Morning News. And um, the only place doing really humor pieces was on any level was uh, McSweeney's. So we were we kind of just combined them in the two. And I think what ended up happening is we got a lot of like the dregs of both of those sites. Um, but that was enough to like, to kind of run something, and we did it for like seven years. Yeah, and I mean, I actually really liked it. I, I remember it got better. <laughs> yeah, I think I pitched you a few books for the site. Um, but I, I so you started this at Amazon before Amazon. I started this in college. Okay, so this was in college, and, and was this kind of like a portfolio piece that you used to apply for jobs? Um, yes. Yeah? Okay. Yeah, and, and not deliberately, but, like, it definitely came in handy. And, then, I mean, I would say 2008, 2009 was, like, sort of when that kind of skill set was, like, interesting or, like, just – it was just, like, it was people – old evil, people knew know? what it was, yeah. you know, or uh, they didn't know how to do it, but they knew that it was, like – a good and important thing. So um, that kind of helped me like get into some of these positions. And honestly, like, you know, like my first job, they're like, oh, you have familiarity, familiar, familiarity with WordPress, you know, <laughs> not the word familiarity, but with the WordPress system. So I don't know, that just put me ahead of a lot of other candidates probably. Yeah. So, Okay, cool. So when you're at Amazon, you um, were cataloging books and uh, you did a lot of writing on the Omnivorations blog, right? Yeah, I did a fair amount of it. Um, they didn't really let me at first. Um, I was just there to – so basically what publishers do is they pay for something called a co-op. Mm-hmm. Um, and this happens at – it's actually I think the, a better analogy for it is is at Barnes & Noble. So you walk into a Barnes & Noble and all those front tables, almost all of them are paid placements. So publishers pay a lot of money to make sure those books are at the front of the store. Works super well. Um the version of it at Amazon is like super obtuse, where you can like pay for banners, you can pay for carousels, they may or may not show up, you can pay for emails. Um, so it was like a lot of doing all of these different little widgets and like working with a publisher. I worked with uh, almost exclusively with Hachette for a long time, um, just like helping them strategize where to put banners for Michael Connolly stuff. Um, and actually, I, did, I didn't hate the job or anything. It was just a lot of a lot of grunt work. Uh-huh. Um, what, what, was there anything like brand new that you saw at the time, you know, in the, the book retail world? Um, you know, is there something that you were able to kind of experiment with? Just because, you know, at the time you were at Amazon and, and still today, but especially then, it was kind of at the forefront of digital reading. Um, you know, it is the everything store. Yeah. Well, I think uh, right at the time that I was there, um, Kindle had been around for a few years at that point. Um, But I think I used to put together, like, you know, if I was putting together an email for Hachette, we would include a link to the print book and then a link to the Kindle book. Um, And I think when I started, only half the books were available in Kindle. Like, you have to remember for digital reading, like, 
I would say like maybe a third of a catalog or maybe even less was available. Um, whereas today it's basically, there's almost complete parity mm -hmm. um, with like a few exceptions. Um, so that was sort of the place I was when I started. And then like by the time I ended there four years later um, in a very different position, um, everything was available on Kindle. Okay. So um, I don't know, I didn't work directly um, on the Kindle product. Um, thankfully, the team is crazy. Um, but you know, I just sort of watched the growth of it. Um, and you know, a lot of a lot of things in the political sense happened between the time I started and the time I left. So And we're gonna come back to that. Yeah. Um however, you were at Amazon and all of a sudden a bunch of developers and engineers from Facebook and Google and um, there's a few, Spotify, if I understand it right, uh, decided to band together and disrupt the reading experience and created a new program called Oyster. Um, is that accurate? I don't know if anyone was from, I actually don't know if anyone is from those places. Really? <laughs> yeah, I think they are all- Is that just how they sold themselves? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, I actually think the founders, if I'm remembering correctly, two of them are from Google. Okay. And then one of them was from eBay. Okay, I must have terrible sources. So many sources. more companies. Um, no, I, I think that's certainly how we would be like we describe ourselves. We're just like, oh yeah, we just like have the the brains of Facebook and the business model of Spotify <laughs> and the design of Paul Rand. Or something, you know, like, <laughs> no, I mean, I, I have to look this up, but like, I, I actually do think I read that somewhere that it was like a bunch of like ex Facebook and Googlers that um, you know created it. But I mean, clearly, I'm wrong. Um, but anyway, this this new app comes about and it has this crazy business model where you pay like a you know, monthly subscription and you can read as many books as you want. And they're kind of in a battle with publishers, maybe not a battle, but their their job is to get publishers to put their books onto the platform. And uh, you see this and, and do what? Yeah. I mean, I was aware of Oyster when I kind of came on the scene, um, you know, when I first heard about ebook subscription. Um, I think like a lot of people in publishing, I, I scoffed. Um, and then uh, I remember, you know, there was sort of a time toward the end of my career at Amazon where I, I knew I wanted to leave, and then um, certain moves that a Amazon made in publishing made me feel like it was imperative to leave. Um, even though I really liked what I was doing, I really liked my boss. Um, I was in New York at this point. Um, Amazon had moved me out there, which is also very cool. Um, so I'm just researching, you know. I, I think I, I had been following every single book startup under the sun which actually is not that many yeah but it's and still, they're it's, all quite they're, they're all horrible they're all really horrible yeah. i remember the one i remember looking um what's the worst one? Oh, i don't know if i could go that deep but i remember i would even say that uh there was a company that people were really excited about maybe you remember this jeff together i don't know that one. uh it was crowdfunding author tours and like the team that was behind it seemed really smart um i knew some people that were working there or around it that were really into it and were like great people. So the idea is that you could just crowdfund um, author tours and like groups of author tours. And it's actually just, not a bad idea. It's just, it's, I mean, it would work like twice a year. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it's like, it's not a bad idea, especially on paper. And then you, you're like, what problem are you solving? Like author tours exist to solve a different problem. So it's like, you're so many steps removed yeah. from like selling books or promoting books or anything like that. So they, they they didn't last long, but like they were the darling for a while. And well, there's there was a there's so many. I, I actually don't know if we should mention the names here, but <laughs> um, there's some that would do like you know video author tours, 
Um, there was there was one that would it was like the Kickstarter for publishing. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> because uh, Kickstarter wasn't enough. I know, right? Uh, they, I mean, the model was like fine. It's just they had like a hundred people using this, so it was like the same people putting money towards the same books. And um, I mean, I actually think that they're like profitable now. Um, so what was it about but, Oyster that sold you though in the end? Oh yeah, um, it's going to be really weird. Um, but I just remember when they, you know, they didn't have a job opening. Um, so I was doing, so by this time at, at Amazon, I had been doing editorial for a while and I was in a really good spot. Um, and I was in here in New York and I knew a lot of people. Um, and I knew, well, there are a lot of reasons that I felt like I wanted to stay, um, in tech. Um, and so, you know, I'm looking at Oyster, um, all of their product is like beautifully designed. The website's great. Um, and have, have, you, have you seen it, Kyle? Oyster? Yeah. No, I've seen the advertisements for it a thousand times, but I've never actually clicked it. It's it's beautiful. I just I you lose me at Netflix of books. Really? I don't know why. It just doesn't it doesn't work for me. Yeah, it's funny. It's like one of those things that we like try to shy away from as like a tagline because you never want to be the X of anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, it's that Simpsons quote, right? It's like if you're the something of something, you're like the nothing of nothing. Or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. They botched that I, Lisa sure Simpson quote, quote. but. Um, Yes, but actually, like that's like what performed really well with Facebook ads. So, which is I'm sure where you saw it. That um, is probably that was our, our main acquisition channel. So that's a, that's brilliant. I mean, it, it truly was. I wouldn't say revolutionary, but it was easily the best book startup that anyone had seen in a decade. With in mind how low that, that bar is, <laughs> yeah. but I I really I mean I, I was together sounds together. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it would, like and together was like the number two gather. Oh so, my God. I know, and that's like a really early like 2000s kind of name. Like the the <laughs> fake uh, boy band together. Yes. Oh you, my God, you're right. Uh, uh, calculus. Uh, uh, but you're you're over at Oyster, and um, or I'm sorry, you're thinking about joining Oyster, and and what pushed you over the edge? They didn't have so a job. So I mean, like I, I mean, basically, uh, there's a couple things. So obviously, I I basically just wrote down, you know, I, I emailed them what is essentially a cover letter. I'm just like, you're not hiring for an editorial director. These are the reasons I think you need one. Here's why it would be good, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then I just remember too, there were like really great pictures of their uh, their office on the website, <laughs> and they had all of these. They had like a whole lunch table. I think they had a picture of people eating lunch, and they were all at these like really beautiful, um, sitting on these beautiful Eames chairs. And I was like, man, that sounds nice. Just like really designy startup with these Eames chairs. Um, Did they have venture money? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. They I think I think. Founders Fund was a big, um, but you know I, I go into the office and of course like the the chairs are knockoffs, um, and actually like as uh, throughout my time at Oyster, eventually um, they would just like constantly break while people were sitting on them. Um, <laughs> it, like it was just like they were the bane of everyone's existence, um, especially the office manager. Um, but yeah, and I went in and I actually I talked to the a couple of founders and I was really impressed by them and, and kind of their vision and I don't know they just. There were just like little things about the app too that were kind of amazing. Um, it's like a mobile first uh, reading experience. And one thing I thought they, that was really cool was um, by default scrolling by page was vertical. Um, and I just like never thought about it before because you know every app, Kindle, iBooks, uh, Google Play Books even, uh, scrolls horizontally, which is how a book works. And that's like just not a natural motion for your thumb. Um, and it doesn't have to be a natural motion for reading on a device. You know, it's just an extension of this like metaphor um, that doesn't really need to exist. So it was just all. I mean, it seems like a very minute thing, but 
uh, just like those kinds of design iter- like decisions, um, really rethinking what that experience could be. Um, I don't know. It just it just seemed like there was like an, an ocean of possibility there. Mm-hmm. And what did you do when they hired you? Um, I said yes. <laughs> I mean, but like, what, what were your duties? Yeah, you yeah. No, um, so I was the editorial director there. Um, so I came on, and the first thing, one of the first things I did was I basically launched uh, a publication there called the Oyster Review. Um, it actually started online only, um, and well, it was always online only. Uh, it started. It was actually a website before it was even in the app, which is kind mm-hmm. of funny. Um, so, you know, like it was kind of a discovery experience. And at first, uh, with Oyster, you know, we only had sign on from two of the big five. Um, so we had a lot of books, like it was near a million books, but, uh, you know, as soon as someone searches for something and doesn't find what they want, they feel like you don't have any books. And And, and you also didn't really have any front list titles, right? No front list. That's true. Yeah. So everything was, you know, at least a year old, which honestly, I think for most people is like a totally fine experience. For for most people. Uh, What is a front list title, by the way, while we're at it? New releases. New releases. Yeah. Uh, So front list versus backlist. And I will say that you ask me that, like those definitions change a lot. Like there are some people who consider backlist anything that's 90 days old, which is insane. (laughs) Um, But anyway, so it was, so, you know, the... The magazine was really cool because it was a way to sort of express the Oyster aesthetic and personality um, on one hand. Um, on the other hand, it was really just a way to make discovery a little easier and make it not feel like there were gaps in our library. Um, so, you know, like you're running a lot of great content about the books you have. Um, so it never feel, you know, like you can run a whole publication about the books you have. It never feels like there aren't enough books. And I think the third thing, too, that's really cool is it really operated as like a like a great marketing effort, you know, like you may not, you may not <clears throat> click on this Oyster Facebook ad, but like maybe you just come to the website because you read something by a writer you like, or you heard something about an author you like. And so it was kind of the way, you know, I think the real challenge, especially when you're at a tech company is like, how do you measure success for something that is like editorial? Because, what, was, what was the traffic like? Um, it was good. It was really good. I think um, we were starting to do around like, half a million page views a month. Wow. Which like for a one man operation with a pretty minimal freelance budget, I think is pretty good. That's phenomenal. Yeah. Uh thank you. Um what was the measure of success that you ended up coming up with? Well, so I always measure things against like kind of three super vague um things. And so like one is the uh the internal. So like for us too, once we brought it into the app, it was a, a retention tool. So we had some numbers around that, like they engage with the content. Do they come back or are they less likely to unsubscribe or churn is the subscription word. So that's kind of like the easiest one. Um, Another one's like external, like are we bringing people into the service? So I measure, or at least getting our brand out there. So I measure that by by web traffic. And then third one is the the murkiest one, but maybe the most important. um, And I just called it like reputation. Um, And so, you know, uh, how much was it helping us with our publishing partners? Um, how much was it helping us with authors? And, you know, it's just establishing us as a brand. And so, like, usually when um, I publish an article, you know, like, I'd be measured, you know, you measure it on something. So, like, not every article does well in terms of traffic. Not every article um, gets engaged with the app. Not every article, you know, is something that a publisher or an author or anyone notices. But, like, as long as it hit one of those things, I would consider it, like, a success. And eventually we're kind of running things that hit, you know, two of those things or if we were lucky, like three of those things. Yeah. And I mean, you had some really cool pieces there. It was it was a really huge success, especially with, you know, like book nerds like me and stuff. 
Um, because, like, you know, one day you would have a huge feature piece uh, about Ursula Le Guin, and then, you know, a week later you would have, uh, I'm sorry, like the next day, you just have, you know, here are the top five nonfiction titles from Max Linsky of Longform or something. Um, and it was just kind of like a pretty unique experience, and, and it was cool because you could totally tell that it was all about the discovery side of things. And I, I pitched you a handful of times, and you actually told me that, um, if the author who's trying to write for the platform does not have a book on Oyster, you do not want that author. Yeah. Um, which, you know, totally self-serving, but I totally get it. Uh, it was just like a limitation of our business, you know? Um, and then eventually, um, what's kind of funny is like the site really took off um, once we, so Oyster was subscription only, and then eventually we added sort of like a store component. So at that point, we got buy-in from all the other publishers that were kind of skittish about um, they subscription. All, they which, all, here, here's the hint, though, and you know this, but they all wanted to be on Oyster. They just, you know, probably depends, couldn't figure it out. It depends money. how far up um, you want to go. They certainly, there were, I'm not going to name publishers, but it was kind of funny because there were certain publishers who were just like, it was the money. There were the publishers who were just like, it's not the money, it's like philosophical. Like, is a book, some, it's, you know, is a book something that's supposed to be like in subscription? Is, you know, does that devalue books? And, you know, I think actually you can go either way on all of those arguments. And I think publishers were pretty, in hindsight, you know, like they all had their different reasons. Um, but yeah, so once we had the store, we had all the books. So we can basically cover more frontless stuff. And that's kind of when the traffic on the site kind of took off. So you, you just brought up a pretty interesting point, um, you know, basically like the difference in ideologies between, you know, the different publishers. Um, and you, and we'll get to Google Play in a minute, but... Um, have worked at, again, three of these uh, companies that are, are kind of, you know, changing the game in publishing. And they're doing it in different ways. Like, one is just this massive retailer. One is trying to change the publishing model. Another is, um, I guess, doing a little bit of both. Um, but, like, do you see any issues with what you're doing as a reader or as a salesman or anything like that? Because I... I you know, I have my opinion, but I'd love to hear yours. Yeah, um, that's a really great question, um, and we'll get to this later. But like, a lot of the reason I left Amazon was because like my ideology was too just just too much at odds with what Amazon was doing in terms of its business. Um, so, I think if I did feel not great about what I was doing, I would probably just quit my job. Yeah. Um, I weirdly have no qualms about that. I've quit a lot of jobs, <laughs> so um, so yeah. So I don't feel that. I actually, I guess what you're asking, right, is like, is there something problematic maybe about digital reading? Well, I, I mean, I, I absolutely, if anybody knows me, like knows that that's not what I think. Right, well, but like maybe, that's kind of what you're asking, right? And yeah. I think it's a legitimate question. That is kind of what I'm at. And like, do you do you put any uh, precedence into what these publishers were saying to you? The ones that did not use Oyster. No, I think there's a lot of validity to it, yeah. um, and it's definitely something I would consider. I mean, like, especially with something like subscription, I think that's even a step further than digital reading. Um, to me, I really believe um, I don't romanticize like the idea of a book. You know, like I think for a lot of people, it's something that's like very important to them, whether it's you know like the ideas or the experience they get out of the book, or if it's just pure entertainment, or if it's anything else. You know, there are a lot of people that take what you might call like a pornographic pleasure out of books and like I don't judge that at all like I think that's great um, 
so I think a lot of, you know, like the philosophical argument of like what a book's supposed to be and who's supposed to read them is just a lot of the gatekeeper argument. And I actually, I would probably say that's more problematic. Um, I think books should be accessible. Um, so I don't know. I think I have a pretty firm set of ideas of what I think is, is good for books. Um, and I, I feel like I've stayed pretty true to that. So I don't, I don't think digital reading um, is antithetical to that in any way. Let me phrase it a different way, because as someone who's repeatedly passed over the chance to join Oyster, but I'm not opposed to digital reading. I don't, you know, stick too close to the idea of a tactile mm-hmm. feeling of reading. Um, one of the things that worries me about Oyster is that I won't get everything out of the subscription because I read a lot. I'm an avid reader, but I'm worried that I'm not going to get as much out of the subscription as I can just because I won't be able to keep up with the month by month subscription. So what's the, I guess, what's the argument for Oyster versus buying books? The yeah, traditional no, I think way? it's fair. I mean, like, first of all, it was like nine ninety nine a month. So I think if you read one book a month, you're definitely getting your subscriptions worth. Um, and like our sweet spot was like people who read one book a month. Um, I think, you know, like our margins started to get a little bit troubling once you got past two books a month, um, which is a lot of reading. It's um, so much reading. It's so much reading. I don't reading. know who has that much time. Kevin has that much time. Uh, yeah. This this was the next venue I was going to go down <laughs> because I know we like we talked about it beforehand with the the Warriors game. But how could you possibly have enough time to be into sports, to read as much as you do, to also play video games, which I do want to talk about because I read your review of Rocket League and I think it's a fantastic game that everybody should play. Where do you find the time to read more than one book a month? I read for, about... For anyone listening, Kevin is on record as, as averaging 150 books a year or more. Am, am I right? Yeah, it's. I read about three books a week. It's unbelievable. A week? I get paid to read books and I can't do that. <laughs> I don't remember the last time I did 100 in a year. Are you reading books simultaneously? Uh, yeah, so to answer your question, um, I have started reading quite quickly. Um, for a while, like my commute was like an hour, hour 15 minutes each way. And so that, to, for me, is enough time to get through two books a week. And then I just read a little bit more on the weekend, so that's three books right there. Um, you know, and that doesn't even take into account, like, other times that I would like to read, you know. Um, and I don't know. I, I guess... Do you uh, speed read? I don't speed read. Well, I mean, I read quickly, but I don't speed read, <laughs> which is, like, you know... Um, I know some people uh, who... Some librarians um, who read every other page... Which like just seems crazy to me. Does I was like, work? just read half of the book and then stop, and then I don't know. Like, and does I think that the... work? You can you can get away with that. Is, yeah. this, is this a deep dark publishing secret? Is read every other page? No, I mean that that is a little crazy. But... That seems like legit crazy to me. Yeah. Like, just skip a chapter <laughs> or something. Like, yeah. at least like read whole chunks of narrative. And especially with nonfiction, you can kind of get the idea of, of what somebody's trying to say by reading like the headings and stuff. Yeah, I will just say that like I like. There are a lot of books that I don't finish. Um, I'm not counting that in that 150. So mm-hmm. there are more books that um, I start and never finish. Um, what's, but f- what, what's the most you ever did in a year? Uh, like probably around, what did I do? I used to keep better track of this stuff. I'm actually trying to read less because I just think the <laughs> other problem too is- The I'll only like, one with that problem. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, it's like I, you know, like I read things in advance. So I read things like three, four, up to nine months ahead of time. But even like something I- read three months ago. I remember uh, reading The Flamethrowers before it came out, maybe five or six months ahead, um, just because Simon & Schuster was so so behind it. I remember reading it and feeling like, this was good, but I felt kind of lukewarm about it, and it came out, and everyone was just like, I fucking love The Flamethrowers. And I was like, 
yeah, I feel like kind of whatever, but it's good, but I feel whatever. And they're like, oh, what didn't you like? And I like did not remember a single thing about that book because <laughs> I had read like 50 books between then. Yeah. So there's some part of me that like, you know, it really does go in one ear and then like it pushes out like another book, right? There's a finite amount of space. Yeah. And it turns out it's like the last four books I've read. So it's... I mean, I, I've actually, I have that problem but with books I read like a decade ago, yeah. and, and also you know I I read not I don't read nearly as much as you. And, well, you keep know, in mind that if you read a book a month, you're reading about a tenth of what he's actually reading. So the I, decade uh, would be par for the course. I, I read I read like sixty or seventy books a year. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a, I mean, it's, it's, it's a decent I'm, chunk. I'm, I'm I'm proud of that, but you know, again, <laughs> like I have to read a lot for work, and then I just like make sure to squeeze in some that I actually want to read. Yeah, so. it means you don't want to read the things for work. Well, you know, sometimes I do, sometimes <laughs> I don't. Um, I mean, uh, I, just back just so anybody here. at Goldberg who's reading this. Um. <laughs> no, but I, I, yes, I read, uh, you know, everything that comes through the office. And some of it is great and some of it is really good, but nothing I would ever pick up off a shelf. Yeah. Um, but, you know, uh, you let's let's get back a little bit on track. Um, <laughs> We've detoured. You and the rest of the team at Oyster did such a good job at this book startup that a little company called Google came up and bought you. Yeah. So what was that like? Also, you know, how often do people who were big Oyster subscribers complain about losing in their books? Um, yeah. Okay. Two separate questions <laughs> <Yeah>. here. Um, <laughs> I would say uh, when Google came along, it got very weird. Um and so it, the thing is, like, things at Oyster had been going pretty well, and they kind of, like, flatlined a little bit in the summer. Um, and, you know, like, you'll have to ask the founders about this stuff because, um, like, I wasn't privy to a lot of these meetings, but it was just one day. And, like, actually the Google people had been in the office before um, just to talk about whatever. And, uh, you know, like, nine months later, they were, like, the founders were like, oh, yeah, we're sort of in talks with Google, and there are a lot of possible outcomes of this, so just hang tight, which is just like... They said this to everybody? Or they said this to everybody. You. Okay. Company-wide email. So you're, you're updating your resume and... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Um, and, you know, I know that there are a lot of outcomes that can be great, and there are a lot of outcomes that can be terrible. Um, and what's interesting is that... Well, so... I guess to back up for a little bit, what like there were probably 28 of us at the company, um, and like for an entire month and a half, we basically did no work. We all showed up to work and did nothing because it's just like if Google shuts us down or buys us or anything like that happens, all the work we're doing right now doesn't matter, you know. And like all the founders were out of the office because they were dealing with this stuff, and so we were just all at the office all day speculating, going crazy. And just like spending way too much time around each other, um, so I would say it's funny because um, I was talking to my girlfriend about this somewhere recently, and I was like, "Yeah, like I just can't believe how smoothly it all went." And she's like, "You were so upset every time you came home from work because you just like <laughs> sat at your desk and just like read articles on the internet and got nothing done, and you would just come home and like drink." You know, I would love to to speak to the person who didn't get brought to Google because they didn't do any work in the last six weeks. Um, I don't think that had any factor in uh, who came and who didn't. But, That's um, fair. Yeah, it was just like like nobody was doing any work. Mm -hmm. um, and it, I just reflect on it as this crazy time. Actually, I didn't. it didn't like calcify to me just how little work 
everyone was doing because like I was like I was just goofing off because like you know when you're editorial like no one is like looking over your shoulder especially when you're the only editorial person <laughs> so again, like I was just getting out the bare minimum and like updating my resume um, and like I was just convinced that like you know if Google were to buy Oyster or Aquahire or something like that like there is certainly a strong precedent for them taking all of the engineers and firing everyone else so I was you know just getting my 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 stuff in in line and then uh someone like she was the marketing person she's like what if we all just go to hudson and we're like ha 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 she's like i'm looking at airbnbs and we're like ha 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 and she's like kevin you want to go rent a car and i was like i've got hertz open and then she's like all right i booked the airbnb we're going up tomorrow (laughs) did you get the car and i was like what the shit like and like i think like six of us went you know like a sizable chunk of the company and it was fine so you just skipped we, work we skipped work for like two days and went to hudson new york yeah just for the hell of it it was Why great hudson because it's like close enough just, uh, we could take the train there and then pick up the car did somebody uh, throw a dart I, almost yeah actually that's much, true yeah. wait are um, you kidding me this happened yeah you need to write about this I don't even know if there's anything to write about. Um, it doesn't matter. I mean, it sounds I mean like... that's the story. Is that a bunch of you guys were afraid of getting fired, so you took a random road trip up to Hudson, New York, of all places. It sounds like a think piece about. And what you it's came like back and were rewarded with a job at Google. Well, it's just like it turns out there wasn't. So you know, like there wasn't a lot of great communication between the founders and the rest of us at the time, and I don't think it was deliberate at all. I think they had our best intentions in mind, um, but you know, like they. They were doing that. They were on phone calls with like Google all day. So um, you know, like it turns out, like they had low expectations of what we were supposed to do. Like they understood why we weren't working. Yeah. But maybe we didn't get that memo necessarily, or I didn't get the memo at least. So I felt bad about it until I didn't. Um, I'm sure they can't tell you all. Oh, by the way, for the next you know six right. weeks. So we don't really care what gets done. So after that six weeks, news came through. Google acquires Oyster. They kept most of you, right? Uh, it ended up being about half. So, okay. so, so no, I would say it's too bad. Um, yeah, I'm not really supposed to talk about like the specific specifics of the deal, but it was half. Okay, so what can you talk about? Well, I, you know, honestly, I don't know. Like, even still, I don't know that much. <laughs> um, like, I don't know like how much money if it was for, mm-hmm. um, what the terms were. Um, so they brought. Well, let, let's skip all that then. I don't want to get you in trouble. Um, you're at Google now. Yes. And you are working on a new editorial direction for Google Play, which is their version of iBooks. Yes. So it's their e- uh, ebook store, um, just like, you know, Amazon Kindle, iBooks, Kobo, mm-hmm. rest in peace, Kobo. Um, at Oyster, it seemed like we had a lot of influence. We had like this pretty decent sized audience. And then, um, you know, Google Play Books has never really been on my radar. Uh, I'm like, an iOS guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then so we arrive at Google, and then I realized that the audience for Google Play Books is so much bigger than what I was working with at Oyster. You know, oh, it's enormous. Maybe not quite the size that we had at Amazon, but you know, like they have a business that generates a lot of money and is very meaningful to authors and publishers and readers. And so once I saw that, you know, like the opportunity to do what we were doing at Oyster um, just felt so much greater. You know, because like I've been working on a lot of these these ideas around editorial and discovery at Amazon, and th- those didn't really take traction at Amazon um, for some reason. Like, you know, they just really don't believe in that kind of stuff. 
at Oyster, I felt like I came there. I got to express a lot of these ideas um, and really explore them and basically take them as far as I could at Oyster. But like resources and scale and time were big factors there. And then sort of arriving at Google, like a place that acquired us basically for that experience, um, I kind of feel like it's all coming together now. Um, we can, you know, I can't talk too much about uh, the stuff we're about to release, but if you were an Oyster fan, I think a lot of it will look kind of familiar, but even better. When do you have a timeline? Uh, can't commit to one. Sadly, oh, well, the on. thing is, I wish on, I make c- this into a press release. <laughs> I know. Well, I wish I could, so I could be like, yeah, it's going to launch on this date. But I like, I have a date in my head, and like, you know, at big companies, these dates slip all the time. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's it's really been interesting because um, a lot of stuff. Uh, we're working on a Google was kind of very similar to product we worked on at Oyster. And like the stuff that would take us one month at Oyster is taking like much longer at Google. And I get it too. There's a lot of stuff good and bad. Like there's a lot of bureaucracy, of course, mm-hmm. but also, you know, everything runs much more efficiently. Um, I think one thing that's really cool is that it has to work, you know, at least it has to have the bones to work globally, which is something we never considered at Oyster. And then it, everything has to uh, be accessible which I think is like super important and just something that we didn't have the time or scale to do at Oyster, which is kind of a cop-out answer for that. Like, like accessible in terms of? Like, uh, you know, for people who are like blind or deaf or, yes. you know, that kind of stuff. So I, uh, we don't have a ton of time left and I want to get to your story. But before I do that, uh, I'm going to make up a new segment right on the spot called Rocket Round. Uh, this is this is news to me. Yeah, no, I'm making it up as we go. All right, uh, Kyle and I are. are Rounds pretty good. It's yeah. podcast jazz. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Kyle and snap, I snap, snap. are going to each ask you a question. You have 15 seconds to answer it. What if I don't have a question? Yeah, I I mean I'll give Rock you a question right. if you want. Rock around. Uh, <laughs> Let's go. Right. I love it. All right, um, so you have 15 seconds. I have a clock right here. Uh, what <laughs> the fuck is K Win Ebooks, which is a oh, Twitter yeah. handle? Uh, K Win Ebooks is my bot. So my friend Brett made it because he was a Broncos fan, and he wanted to troll me, and he's an engineer, so he used an algorithm that just mimics Time. my speech. Kyle, go. <laughs> Don't cut him off. Um, this is a new segment, and I already disagree with cutting him off. What video game are you playing right now? Um, I am playing a game called Dead Star, which is a top-down shooter. I don't really like it that much. Don't uh, recommend. Do not Don't play. recommend it. All right, Dead Star, avoid. Uh, how much were you paid for your last freelance g- writing gig? Um, oh shit, good question. 500 bucks? For who? Um, I'm trying to remember. I usually don't take things that are under 50 cents a word. Okay, Kyle, go. What was that article? I'm trying to remember what it was. I just remember cashing the check. <laughs> uh, I haven't done as much freelance writing lately. Um, I don't know. I don't know, like, can you dox rates? Is that is that bad form? Actually, uh, well, that, I think this is probably something that we this want is... to get into eventually, right? Uh, I mean, not, not is, is, podcast, Rocket is Rocket Round over? Is Rocket Round over? No, we're 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 we'll go we're back to this back. after. We'll yeah. go back to this after. All right. Um, is it my question? Yeah, go. Uh, it's my question. Um, shit, I had a question until we. What's the last song that you listened to? Oh, um, definitely "Angels" by Chance the Rapper. Oh, so good. It's really good. And then, like, I saw it on Colbert, and then like the video came out you again, video and I was too? like, oh my god! I watched like the dance part at the end of that video like a couple times. It's a day. amazing. It's amazing. It's so, so good. happy. Time. Uh, What's the last book you read? Um, finished or like am reading? Finished. <laughs> finished. Shit. I'm like in the middle of so many books. Um, oh, so I was at the LA Times Book Festival last weekend, so I had a bunch of panelists. So I just read Matt Bell's Scrapper. That book is amazing. Good? It's really good. I I feel dumb for having never read Matt Bell before, but it's like 
super gritty. It's kind of about um, basically in Detroit, there's like a an underground Tom, economy. Kyle, last of... question. Stop that! Stop <laughs> that right now. I'm um, sorry. I, I we, we got to do rock around. Though. Yeah, it's rock around. These are the rules. Should I feel dumb for not having read Matt Bell? That's not my real question. What was the last best restaurant you ate at in New York? Oh, um, I love food. Yeah, no, my girlfriend's a food writer, so like now I can't remember. But we've been out of town for like a month and a half. Ooh, where so, were you? Well, I was in San Francisco a lot for work, and then uh, we were in Japan for two weeks. Wow. Um, it was great. And then I was in L.A., so that sounds we fantastic. moved into a new apartment at the beginning of March, and I've spent like maybe a week there since then. And for the record, it's like midway through April. <laughs> so, I don't know when this podcast comes out. So. Probably next week. Yeah, okay. well, <laughs> pro- most likely next Hopefully week. Hopefully I'll have spent another week there. Wait, wait, wait. The okay, so last best restaurant you ate at in New York? I'm trying to think. Um, not escape the McDonald's. Um, no, we... I would say um, I didn't love it. I think it was called Bricolage. Um, it's from the guy that does the slanted door in San Francisco. So he's like the okay. one bougie. I, I think I went there. Yeah, I didn't love the meal on the whole, but they had a bun chow, which is like the Vietnamese crepe, and that might be the best version of that I've ever had. Wow. So okay. I think you should go there for like a beer and a crepe. Beer and crepe. Beer and crepe. We're going tonight. Yeah. Um, all right, so Rocket Round is over. Uh, <laughs> I love it. it. And we're going to you know, fix that for next time, but I really liked how that went. Yeah, you kind of uh, sprung that one on me. Yeah, no, of course. I mean, I have like 100 more questions, but we're at like at an hour and we're really trying to not do that anymore. Um so the point of this show is to speak to a writer about a story that they have struggled to tell in the past. Uh, it could be because of economic reasons, financial reasons, romantic reasons, religious reasons, or just generally something that you didn't want to tell anyone before. Um, and you have a story that is kind of about the culture of Amazon. And I'm going to let you take it from here. Um but for anyone listening who's not terribly familiar, uh, this is something that has been written about fairly often. Uh, there's even a big spat between Amazon and the New York Times uh, about a year ago. Um, but I'm going to let Kevin take it from here. Yeah. Um, so a lot of people, especially people in publishing in New York, they ask, like, it, especially when I was at Amazon, they're like, why do you work at Amazon? And, you know, like, this is like a very easy question to ask if you're like a Yale grad who is white and lives in New York and works in publishing because like that world has always seemed so accessible to you. Um, I think there are a lot of things that are great about publishing. Um, It's a creative industry that is, you know, like actually largely female dominated um, in a lot of ways. And I think that like that has done wonders uh, to it as an industry. Although you could also argue that four of the five CEOs of the big five are, are men. But um, but so there are a lot of positives about that too. On the flip side, it has traditionally been an industry uh, ruled by people of like very privileged backgrounds, um, extraordinarily white backgrounds. Um, there's just no, there's very very little diversity within publishing. Um, and so, I don't know. It always I kind of touched on this earlier today, but you know, the idea of being in publishing, being in books just seemed so distant and so foreign, especially living in Seattle. Like, I just never thought I could break into it. So, you know, like when there was a job at Amazon, um, which I really just joined because that was a place that would have been, that's the first time I ever had healthcare. Um, and I was paying for it out of pocket before because um, I really believe that it's something you need to have. Um, <laughs> you are not wrong. Obama I feel, yeah, not wrong. I feel like I'm probably alone on this. I just think healthcare is good for people. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, this you is. Should like, check it out. Yeah, you should check it out. Uh, healthcare. Uh, <laughs> the ironic thing too is like when I was paying for healthcare out of pocket, which is very expensive, especially when you're only making three thousand dollars a year. It's like I went to the doctor like all the fucking time. I went to the dentist like. Ever since I got healthcare, I'm like so lax about it. I just take it for granted, <laughs> which I'm sure most of the world is like, right? But um, so job with healthcare, you know, job at a company people know pays okay. My early wages at at Amazon were not even that great, um, even by Seattle standards. Um, but I got to work somewhere remotely related to books, you know. And I was book reviewing on the side at the time. Um, and you know, if you freelance write book reviews, you know, there's literally no money in it. I mostly wrote for free. Um, so I started there, um, and you know, it was just a job and, uh, there weren't a whole lot of opportunities for, for merchandisers to like even really move up. Um, I think that's one of those, and this is the thing of, uh, there was that Jody Cantor piece, um, that was kind of that investigation of Amazon's culture about a year ago, maybe less. I know a lot of people quoting that piece. Um, I largely think it's like a great piece. Uh, and I think the scary thing about it is that this these weren't like flukes necessarily. This was Amazon working the way Amazon's supposed to work, right? Like the idea is that like anyone that can't hack it is out. You know, like they either quit or you make it so miserable for them that they leave. Uh, so that's just how it was working. Um, and so, you know, like I had a job there that was like pretty tough, um, but there was this editorial team um, and they, they ran this thing called the best books of the month. Um, and it was, it was truly editorial. They basically picked 10 great books coming out the next month. Um, and, you know, like they, there was a team of editors that, that ran it, but if you wanted to, you could read for it. And I was like, hell yeah. Like I, you know, this is great. I'm just going to be involved in, in, this, in this project. I'll get to write, if I'm lucky, a paragraph review of these books, have any say, any influence in this thing that always seemed so distant from me. So um, basically, I just did a good job. Um, and I remember, uh, God, so I, I was sort of saying earlier that I work with Hachette. So basically, Hachette sent me all their galleys, and I also I had to distribute them um, among all the editors. I remember one day getting a giant box of copies of The Art of Fielding. And this was like probably in March or, or April, and the book came out in September, October. So did, it was in advance of BEA. Did you love it? So it's part of the story. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no, no. Like, let me get to that. So, like, uh, so I got this giant box, and I'd never gotten a box that big of one book. And there was actually a handwritten note from Michael Peach. Um, and I, you know, I knew who Michael Peach was. Uh, he's the CEO of Hachette now, um, Hachette US. Uh, at the time, I think he was just um, the publisher of Little Brown, just the publisher. He's a, an important person. You know, he edited <laughs> David Foster Wallace. I think he discovered James Patterson. So he's kind of all over the place. Um, Every wow. form of success, right? Um, so, so I get this book, and it's like I read the back, and it's like, oh, it's like, and we just had this joke, like the the back, the, the jacket copy was so terrible, um, and it's like it was basically like, oh, it's about baseball, but also about life. <laughs> um, I mean, like it's also not an inaccurate description of the book. No, it's no, just like, who the fuck wants to read that? And then I, I finally read it, feeling kind of obliged with like my, you know, two dozen galleys of the book. And I was like, this book is incredible. And I th actually think this was almost an advantage for me being in Seattle and not knowing like maybe the baggage that comes with this author, Chad Harbach, um, who I think is generally well liked, but you know, he's an N plus one guy, which, you know, as a- Had the Vanity Fair article come out yet? 
No, no, this was way in advance of that. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, so, you know, like, I didn't know anything about this author. I didn't know that it sold for a bunch of money because I didn't have a publisher's lunch subscription at that point. So I just read this book uh, without all the baggage, which I don't think anyone in New York was able to do. Um and so, and I was like, this is great. You know, like I have some issues with it, but I think largely this is going to be both a, a critical success and a commercial success. So I, I bring it um, for best books of the month. Um, I think we, we make it the best book of the month. And that's the first time, like the one I went to bat for, like really did well. Um, and then uh, we end up making, or the editors end up making uh, the book, book of the year. Wow. Um, so they sell like a ton of copies of this book, and um, I get to take a lot of that credit, you know. And, uh, you know, outside of the editorial team, uh, they kind of judge things by like how many books get sold. So um, I pick something that like kind of hits all, you know. Everybody loves you. Everybody, yeah. Everyone's like, oh, like maybe this kid knows what he's doing. Um, so I get more involved, and eventually I move to New York to join the editorial team full-time, and I just basically work exclusively on Best Books of the Month, and eventually I run it. Um, and what's really interesting is, you know, like, now I'm finally here, and I'm, like, in New York, um, and there's certainly a contentious relationship with Amazon um, then, but, you know, like, I'm working on what is basically the most wholesome part of, of Amazon's book program. Um, so, you know, like, I meet a lot of people, I get invited to a lot of lunches, I meet a lot of authors, editors, agents, like, all trying to get my ear on this stuff. Um, and I, I realized that, you know, I don't think I could have had that experience had I come from a traditional, if I had somehow even managed an internship at, like, a big five publisher. Um, and, you know, like, those internships, like, saying my first job paid, like, $15,000 a year, like, that's basically what an internship is here in New York, except you live in New York. Um, so I don't think I could have had like this entry, uh, into the publishing world, you know, without coming from Amazon. And, you know, there are a lot of things that are problematic about Amazon, but I would say that like, at least in terms of like diversity, it's doing, you know, it still has work to do, but like tech generally has like better diversity than a lot of these creative industries in New York. So I never felt like, you know, the color of my skin would be used against me in terms of my opinions or what I could do. So what, what you're trying to get at is the fact that, um, you know, there's a stigma in New York publishing saying that, you know, most of the, most people need internships in New York publishing in order to get a job in New York publishing. And, uh, you know, those jobs go to people who can afford to, you know, not get paid anything to live in New York and, um, you know, work in publishing. Uh, so you're saying you didn't really have that experience and it, you know, you kind of found like a backdoor into it. It definitely feels and still feels like a backdoor. Um, I will say that like, you know, not everyone that is like white comes from a privileged background. Um, but, you know, like in publishing, I, I guess mean, I just don't know of that many people of color that can take an unpaid internship. Yeah, no, and I, I'm totally with you. And and I mean, I every, every time I go to like a reading or something, I hear some story about, um, I don't want to name names, but like, you know, daughters of famous writers, you know, writing for newspapers or, um, you know, so and so works here because their father is like an investment banker or something. Oh, Jeff um, took me to a mixer once for publishing. It's all privileged white people. Yeah. I've never seen so many sweater vests in my life. But, uh, you know, that said, um, you know, what kind of things did you experience at Amazon? 
Oh, um, yeah. It was like a hell of a place to work. Yeah. Um, so it was kind of tough in different ways. Um, yeah. On, I, on, on the diversity front, you you told me before about Little A. Yeah, actually. So um, so this was a little later. So like when I moved to New York, uh, Little A is an imprint of Amazon Publishing. Um, so I kind of I lived through a lot of like the rise and fall of Amazon Publishing. Not that it's like falling out, but like I feel like it's. You know, there was a lot of press about it at the beginning, um, a lot of misguided decisions made, especially about who they hired in New York. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I don't think this is like a secret, but like the guy that they hired to run all of Amazon publishing um, was later like accused of like sexually assaulting, you know, someone. Um, and so like these were the decisions they made on top of the fact that like he probably had terrible taste in books, you know. Um, but actually, yeah, I think a lot of the Amazon publishing stuff has sort of settled in a way where they're all, like, I think they're doing really well. They're so acquiring really a, smartly. It's a fairly, you know, profitable business right now. Yeah, and Little A. Um, so Little A is their uh, their literary arm. Um, and, you know, there was a point in time where actually uh, the entire editorial staff of Little A uh, was run by people of color. Wow. I mean, every editor. You know, like, and that's, and it wasn't just, like, all Asians or something. Like, it was you know, a good, actual diverse mix of people from very different backgrounds. Um, How large of a staff was it? Uh, it's probably like four or five, you know, which actually like, it's I mean, enough. that tracks with a lot of indie publishers. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the sad thing about indie publishers is that they are also mostly white because it <laughs> is so poorly paid. And, um, you know, at least like Amazon pays like a living wage. You know, I don't think the editors at Little A make an obscene amount of money or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like livable for New York, you know. Um, so I, that's something that like never gets talked about or written about. And I'm, you know, you know, with a staff of five, it's like probably not that hard to hire all people of color. But also, I try to think of any other place where that has ever existed. And uh, media is a little bit better on the diversity front. Um, I think the the really troubling thing um, about uh, book publishing is that you know there is certainly a strong emphasis on diversity of authors, which is great. And yet, there's that same attitude is not necessarily reflected um, within the staffs of you know these publishing houses. Mm-hmm. Um, it is still overwhelmingly white. You know, like I had this, uh, you know, and I think like largely um, Asian American men are like pretty decently represented in a lot of places um, where other minorities may not be. Um, and I say that coming from tech, where uh, Asian American men are, are actually very well represented, or fa- I would actually I would argue fairly represented. <laughs> I, yeah, every time like a diversity report comes out from like a, a major tech company, they're like, yeah, we're like twenty percent Asian, you know, it's just like, yeah, you're like in California, it's like forty percent Asian, you're not even there yet. Tell us a little bit about like some of the um, criticisms of Amazon and and how that reflected on your experiences there. Oh yeah, um, so I mean, Amazon is like a notoriously difficult place to work. Um, I don't know. I remember like right around the time I started. Um, you know, I had, uh, and I don't want to take their stories because it, it's their stories, but, uh, you know, I had two colleagues that were, um, like, back-to-back diagnosed with breast cancer, uh, like, within a month of each other on the same team, um, and we're joking, like, oh, there must be something in the water or whatever, um, and Amazon, for about a year, was very supportive of them, you know, like, they raised money for them, they give them all the time off they needed, um, and then after that year, uh, I think they, you know, like, 
their performance reviews started becoming like really negative. And it just became clear from leadership that like they were supposed to get out. So uh, one of them just left on her own accord. Um, another one was eventually let go. Um, and that was like a really tough thing to realize uh, what was going on because it's like, you know, cancer is not something that just goes away after a year. Like they are living with this for the rest of their lives. Like even if, you know, the tumor's like benign, like it can always spring back the next year. So every year, you know, like you get checked for, for cancer again and every year it's like the same level of risk. And it's just really interesting. Um, I just imagine if maybe Amazon wasn't so male-dominated, uh, it might be a little bit more empathetic to these situations. That's interesting. It's, uh, I mean, you actually had kind of a like fairly unique situation because um, you were working at Amazon during the crisis with Hachette, and your girlfriend works at Hachette. Yeah. Um, I mean, I How is that's that? only part that of it, life? but it's certainly like, it's certainly not, it was certainly a factor. You know, I mean, yeah. you know, uh, I never, my girlfriend's uh, name is Anna. She uh, she was working at Hachette at the time. Um, she was an editor. Um, and so, you know, a lot of this had happened. And she never, she never brought it up or to pressure me or anything like that. Um, but I, you know, she must have felt a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's to her credit, um, for sure. But yeah, I mean, I just, the Hachette debacle um, was bigger than anything I'd ever experienced at Amazon. And it, it's worth noting that, like, the story that people told before that um, around Amazon negotiations was, like, the weekend where they turned off all the Macmillan books <laughs> that happened for one weekend. It was, like, Memorial Day weekend where, like, no one was buying books anyway. And they turned back on a Monday, you know, yeah. or Tuesday. Um, so with Hachette, these books were and they, removed for months. And it, yeah, no, it was it was not great. There um, were front page stories in the Times about it, right? Yeah, and uh, I don't know. Um, Amazon had hugely miscalculated a lot of things, including their own math um, in terms of their negotiations, um, which you know I don't know enough about to get too into detail with. But you know, once it had escalated, um, it started on the print side, then they pulled in the digital side, then everyone was involved. And clearly the optics of this were, were pretty bad for Amazon. I think that was the first time they'd ever really dealt with that. Um, it was the first time they ever really responded to criticism. And, of course, that backfired completely. Um, so I think that was sort of the first time. And publishers and authors uh, have been saying this for a long time, that you know Amazon is a dangerous monopoly for books and elsewhere. And I think this is the first time that it kind of went public uh, to, you know, like, the kind of person that doesn't care about what people feel in publishing, which is a totally normal human way to feel. Yeah. Um, so yeah, sort of around those times, I was thinking about all those things, and I was already kind of primed to leave. I felt like I had learned everything I could learn there. Um, so that kind of spurred a lot of uh, a lot of what made me leave. And I mean, it was it was crazy. You couldn't go a day without seeing something like that, but uh, without seeing you know like a, a story about. How terrible Amazon was. Yeah, and it's—I like, mean—for how insidery that yeah. is. Um, well, yeah, I mean, especially as someone with no insight into the publishing industry, to see authors come out against Amazon was something I'd never. I mean, it was Amazon's huge miscalculation, right? Like Amazon somehow believed—and by Amazon, I mean like specific people at Amazon who should have known better—believed that authors just must hate their publishers or something like that. It's like the authors just must believe that. 
uh, publishers are like not representing my books and taking huge cuts of right, like right, right. my my royalty or revenues. And that's like not the case at all. Like I don't know if you've been to like the Harper Collins office, but the way when I was toured around the new one, um, yeah, it's so nice. It's super nice, and also like the way it was described to me is like an author can come to the main floor and see every single department that she has to interact with, which is like a really cool way to design an office, right? Maybe not super efficient, but like the idea that like literally the office plan is made for authors more than your employees is really interesting. Um, and so I don't know how Amazon thought that, you know, like they could win over authors like that. Um, and I remember too, uh, I don't know if you remember the, uh, what was that letter? Authors United? Yeah. I can't remember what the the Amazon one was called, but like Basically, I, I, my last day was on a Friday, and Saturday morning, Amazon released a site that was like a plea to authors to just like, it's like, publishers don't care about you, come to us. And I was like so embarrassed reading that. I was like- And their, their argument is basically, you know, we'll give you bigger royalties. Um, and that's pretty much it, right? Literally the only argument. Yeah. Um, you know, it also just like made the assumption that publishers aren't good at what they do, and like, Publishers are bad at a lot of things. They're really good at picking books. They've been doing it for like 200 years. Like, <laughs> they're really good at it. Um, they're also really good at making authors like feel good about being there on the whole. You know, like there are these examples of authors being burned. Um, I mean, as with any industry. Yeah. Uh, there was like that Matt Iglesias article in Vox about like how his publisher had burned him and like, Turns out it was like Wiley. It's like that's a textbooks publisher. Like I that actually is... don't know if I've seen that story. Oh I'll, man, I'll have to look it up. He's so embarrassing. Um, you think so? Yeah, I just think he's he's always wrong. He's always wrong. He's like he's a huge Amazon defender. Just yeah. seems contrarian at this point. Yeah, I mean, I I uh, every every company does something right and something wrong. Um, well, I thank you for joining us. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, uh, it's like the fastest hour of my life. That was like an hour and a half. Yeah, it's it's been an hour and 20 minutes. We really stuck to our uh, four segments of 10 minutes each, huh? Yeah, you guys should just do an hour of uh, Rocket Round or whatever. Rocket Round Hour. I don't know who would listen to that. Would you listen (laughs) to that? Well, I I mean, we're going to... Just shouting questions at each other and then cutting off the answers. Well, actually, it's usually Jeff shouting a question and then you being like, ah, don't have a question. Wait, don't cut him off. (laughs) I'm thinking of a question. The second you get one. All right, Kyle, time? (laughs) No, I think we, we, we actually can uh, probably do like you know an extended rocket round in the future. Um, we can just recycle the same questions. Well, now I'll have questions. Yeah. Now I'm, I might actually have a chance to think about it. <laughs> you for had the, the next same topic. notes that I do. Podcast drama. Um, You're hearing this live on the air. Later, I'm going to slap Jeff for rocket <laughs> round. But anyway, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was a ton of fun. It was a lot of fun. And uh, you know, we where, really can, where can we find you online? Um. Yeah. Hopefully there will be a lot more coming from Google Playbooks uh, in the next few months. Um, and you can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash Okay, so that was Kevin Wynn on the show. Thank you so much, Kevin, for being on it. Uh, we, Such an interesting guy to talk to. And he reads a stupid amount of books. I, I still can't get over the fact that I've never been able to focus on a single book for long enough to feel like I really got it, and he's doing four or five at a time. Uh, he is an even better Twitter user than he is a conversationalist, and you can find him at uh, K Nguyen. 
So thank you all for listening to the show. Thank you, Kyle, for joining in the conversation. And tune in next week to hear us talk to Jason Diamond about, among other things, his love of John Hughes. He loves John Hughes. You can subscribe to our newsletter and get updates for all of this at tinyletter.com slash podcast. You can check out our website, uh, www.podcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at www.podcast. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, Medium, uh, you name it. Um, want to thank Ryan Dan for doing the music at the top and the bottom of the show. Ryan Dan is from Holland Patent Public Library, which you can find online at hollandpatentpubliclibrary.com. And we'll see you all next week with Jason. 